All right, everybody, good morning. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. If you are new to Remnant, I would love to meet you. I will be out in the lobby after the service, so feel free to stop by, say hello. Um, we are here, um, honestly, because our lives are changing because we've surrendered to Jesus and we don't really understand it. I mean, that's honestly true. We don't know exactly why we've changed. We don't know exactly how we've changed. But what we know is the moment we surrendered to Christ, things started happening within us and we're becoming different people. So we come back every week to surrender more so we can be changed more. And we've been looking at this book. It's at the very end of the Bible and it's called Revelation. It's called Revelation, not shuns. There's only one revelation. And we've been talking about how that revelation is Jesus Christ himself. We talked about how in this book, it's not a book that's designed to confuse people. It's not a book that's supposed to be cryptic or have hidden messages or subliminal messages or any of the weird things everybody talks about. It's a book that's supposed to show us Jesus revealed very clearly. It's to unveil to us who Jesus is and what will soon take place. We also learned that the first 65 books of the Bible are the foundation for Revelation. Books like Daniel and Ezekiel and Genesis and Thessalonians and Matthew. There's actually almost nothing new in the book that hasn't previously been discussed somewhere else. And so when you find yourself studying Revelation, when you find yourself studying Revelation, you um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, Muriel, it's good to see you. When, when uh, you study the book of Revelation, you find out that this book is straight from God through John to us. The purpose of this book is to tell us what was, what is, and what is to come. It's a self-proclaimed word of God, and it's a book of prophecy. It tells us our future. If you want to know the future of what Jesus is going to do on earth, this is it. Last week, we covered what was. We, we saw Jesus as he really is. We saw Jesus tending to the seven lampstands that were in the seven churches, and we learned that he has angels and pastors over those churches, and he holds everything in his right hand. And we learn that even John passed out when he saw the fully revealed Jesus Christ. For John, those were the things that were. Now in chapter 2 and 3, we're going to learn about the things that are. John is going to be asked to write seven letters to seven churches. Seven, the number of completion, of perfection. These letters give the current condition of those seven churches not from their perspective, not from the world's perspective, but from the only perspective that matters, that of Jesus Christ. So let's review the seven churches again. They're all in Asia Minor that we would now call modern day Turkey. They were all likely church plants from the church at Ephesus. If you remember, John was the pastor of the church at Ephesus and these churches were likely very well known to him. He most likely helped to start them, support them, and very likely preached at each of them. These seven churches are on the trade routes that go out from Ephesus. Each road, it was a seaport, and they had roads that went out. And so this was seven very real churches in seven very real places with seven very real pastors and congregations, and they were consisted of first century followers of Jesus Christ. Now let me also remind you that we've spoken in the past about the importance of numbers in the Bible. 3, 7, and 12 represent completeness or fullness. Also remember that during the first century there were two great persecutions of Christians. Jesus was crucified in 32 AD. 30 years later, Nero persecuted the Christians for burning Rome, which they didn't do, around 64 AD. Both Peter and Paul were martyred during that persecution in 64 AD. 
Then about 30 years later in 98 AD, Domitian began persecuting Christians. At that time, John was the last remaining apostle and he most likely wrote Revelation while that persecution was amping up somewhere in about 95 AD. The first letter is to the church at Ephesus. This city is very important to understand. It's an important city in Asia Minor. It's on the coast. It's a huge seaport. It likely had 250 to 300,000 residents at the time of uh, the first century. That's just a little smaller than Tampa. It's a very wealthy city because international ports bring in money for trade. In addition, it's a hub for the Roman road system. If you landed at Ephesus, you could go anywhere in Rome on their Roman roads. The Romans built over 600,000 miles of roads. Ephesus is at the hub of this region. The spokes that go out from Ephesus on these roads are to the seven different churches. In the time of Romans, it bore the title of the first and great metropolis of Asia. Ephesus was a big deal. It was distinguished for the Temple of Diana, who had their chief shrine for its theater, which was the largest in the world, and could seat 50,000 spectators. It was, like all ancient theaters, open to the sky. And it is here where they frequently exhibited wild beasts in, cons in uh, fighting with men. The Temple of Diana, or also called Artemis, at Ephesus is ranked as one of the seven wonders of the world. The twin sister of Apollo and the daughter of Zeus, they say, Artemis was known variously as the moon goddess, the goddess of hunting, the patroness of young girls. The temple at Ephesus housed the image of Artemis and was reported to have directly come from Zeus. Zeus himself, they said, put the image of Artemis actually in the temple. This city was famous as a religious, cultural, and economic center of the region. It had the temple of Diana, she was a fertility god, um, goddess who was worshipped with immoral sex. The tremendous temple to Diana at Ephesus is regarded, as I said, one of the seven wonders of the world. I think it is a wonder. that Anyway, um, it was supported by 127 pillars, each pillar 60 feet tall. It was adorned with great sculptures. The temple of Artemis was also a major treasury and the bank of the Western world. Merchants, kings, even cities made deposits there. Their money would be kept safe under the protection of God, they felt. Ephesus was a stronghold of Satan in this region. Many evil things, both superstitious and satanic, were practiced. Books containing formulas for sorcery and other ungodly and forbidden acts were plentiful in the city. A main thoroughfare about 105 feet wide ran from the theater to the harbor and at each end stood an impressive gate. It was flanked on each side by rows of columns 50 feet deep. And behind these columns were baths and gymnasiums and impressive buildings. If you go there today, you can see the mosaics on the floor that date back to that time in tile. There was also a church at Ephesus. Let's talk about that for a moment. Paul founded this church during his missionary journey. If you remember, a man named Apollos was preaching in Ephesus when Priscilla and Aquila heard him and learned that he hadn't yet been baptized in the Spirit but rather just in John's baptism. Now, we know that many Jews took up their residence in the city. It's in this city that the, the seeds were sown after Pentecost. So when the disciples received the Holy Spirit and left to go to Jerusalem and Samaria and beyond, one of the first places they got to was actually Ephesus. At the close of the second missionary journey, when Paul was returning from Greece to Syria, he visited the city. He remained, however, for a short time 
because he likely had to get back to the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem. If you remember, he left Aquila and Priscilla behind at Ephesus to carry on the work of spreading the gospel. Ephesus was a church in a city where Diana is worshipped that was helped founded by a woman, a woman of God, Priscilla. The history of the church there began in about 50 AD. Paul came to Ephesus in AD 52. And during his Ephesian ministry, he wrote Corinthians. That's more than you want to know. I just want you to understand that he spent a significant amount of time in this city. It's going to be important later. Paul discovered the same thing when he came to Ephesus. Believers who'd not received the Holy Spirit. After praying for them and seeing them, he prayed for them to receive the Spirit. Acts 19.8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul was here for two years. Notice the opposition to the gospel message. Every time the gospel is preached, it is rejected by many. If people aren't rejecting what's being preached, it's not the gospel. People were speaking evil in the synagogue, so Paul took the believers and preached for two years in the hall of Tyrannus. And notice that all the residents of Asia heard the gospel, Jews and Greeks. During his third missionary journey, Paul reached Ephesus and stayed there for three years. So successful were his efforts, so successful were the efforts of this early church that when everybody heard the message of the gospel, they began to change their lives. Ephesus is where those who were involved in magic and witchcraft burned all their books in public once they found God. We learn in Acts 19 that their books that they burned were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Ephesus is the city where there was a riot because Paul put the silversmiths out of business because no wanted, wanted, nobody wanted silver idols anymore. Think about that. He's at Ephesus, the most demonic place you can be. They plant a church there, and it's so effective that the people that are selling false idols and witchcraft and sorcery have to go out of business. They drag the companions of Paul into the streets while chanting, Great is Artemis, Diana of the Ephesians. Acts 19.35, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Who is there and who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, as are the proconsul. Let them bring the charges against one another. In other words, Paul taught the truth of the gospel and people changed their lives to the point that people were going out of business. Imagine in the U.S. if revival hit a city and all the porn industry went under. It's actually happened in the early 1900s. Pray for it again. Then Paul was making his last trip to Jerusalem. He stopped by Ephesus. If you remember, he had to go to Jerusalem. He knew he had to go there and people were trying to talk him out of it. On the way back, he stopped at this city to meet with his elders. He'd already protected them, he thought, from false teaching. Acts 20, 29. He tells them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I may not survive. There's one thing I want you to know when I leave. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 
Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul's like, I'm leaving. Wolves are coming. They're not from outside the church. They're inside the church. They're going to bring false teaching. They're going to try to destroy you from the inside. Paul left Timothy to watch over the church. And then he was imprisoned around 64 AD and later died. Here's what he told Timothy. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. He not only told the elders to watch out for false teachers, he told Timothy, I'm leaving you here, but don't be afraid to challenge false teaching inside the church. So Ephesus was a city that is crucial to the spread of the gospel. False teachers were a huge concern. Paul protected them from false teaching when he was there. Then he warned the elders that these teachers would arise within the flock. And finally, he goes to his protege, Timothy, who's going to serve there. And he says, please, please hold on to the truth. In the 6th century AD, the Roman emperor Justinian started a magnificent church to John's memory at Ephesus. So at about 560 AD, they built a church to John's name, St. Basilica. It continued to play a critical role in the early church. A long line of bishops in the Eastern Church lived there. In AD 431, the Council of Ephesus officially condemned the Nestorian heresy, which taught that there were two separate persons, one divine, one human, in the person of Jesus Christ. They denied his deity. So let's go to Revelation 2. With that understanding in mind, the big city, the temple, everything there, Jesus says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Now we talked last week about how cool it would be if every church had their own little angel. And I pray there's an angel over remnant. But it's unlikely that if God wanted to communicate with an angel about the condition of a church that he would write a physical letter. I think God had better ways of communicating with angels. In addition, the angel of the church would already know the church's spiritual condition. The word in Hebrew for angel means messenger, the one who's responsible for delivering the message from God to the congregation. Since this is a physical letter going to real churches, many people believe that the angels in his hand are the pastors of those churches, the ones responsible. That's incredible to me because we see that each of these churches has huge issues. But the pastor, the angels, the messengers, however you want to look at it, are still in the right hand of Jesus. You've got to remember that. Throughout these letters, no matter what Jesus complains about, he's holding them in his hand. They're not going to go too far. They're not going to have too many. He's holding them. He's supporting them, allowing them, and growing them. And he's walking among the church lampstands tending to them. I would rather know that I'm in the right hand of Jesus, that we together are in the right hand of Jesus than to know we have an angel assigned to our church, but I like the idea of both. So we'll just go with that. Now think about this. John is told to write a letter to the messenger or pastor at Ephesus. And as he begins writing, it has to dawn on him I'm writing to me. This letter follows the same pattern of the other seven letters, so let's look at it. There's an introduction from Jesus. There's a commendation, this is what you're doing well. There's a condemnation, this is what you're not doing well. And then it's followed with a call to action. Every letter is very similar. For the most part, all seven letters follow the same pattern with two exceptions. For the church in Smyrna, we're going to see there are no words of condemnation, so we'll pay attention to that. And for the church at Laodicea, there's no words of commendation. 
Ouch. For the church at Laodicea, there's no positive words flowing. We'll find out why when we get there. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven lampstands. Jesus identifies himself to the church by describing the vision that had just been revealed to John. He holds seven stars and he walks among the lampstands of the church. They emphasize the authority of Jesus in the church, his immediate presence with the church. He's walking among the lampstands. It stresses that Jesus is central to the church and should be recognized as central to the church. When you see Jesus walking among the lampstands, don't forget the brightest light in that moment is coming from Jesus himself. He holds, the, the Greek word is an emphatic and complete word. It means he holds them securely. He's not going to lose them. He's not going to drop them. He's not holding on loosely. He holds them. Got the churches in his right hand. Revelation 2.2. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. In other words, Jesus says, look, I know you did what Paul asked you to do. False teachers came and you tested them and you've recognized them and you claim them as false. I know you're enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my name's sake and you haven't grown, grown weary. Jesus is like, yes, you're doing what I asked you to do. Jesus describes for John the way things are at the church of Ephesus. He says, I know. He's the only one who really knows the spiritual condition of any church or its members. Remember, his eyes were penetrating like fire. Seeing everything, burning through, through fake effort, pretenses, false things at the church. He's revealing what's true. A searing penetration of truth into the church. Jesus' opinion about the church is the only thing that matters. It's no mystery to him. He sees everything. There may be sin or corruption hidden in a congregation, but it's not hidden from Jesus. He would say the same thing to us today both as individuals and as a congregation. I know your works. And more importantly, I know the heart behind your works. I know when you're faking it, I know when you're not. So what is the spiritual condition of the church at Ephesus? Jesus lists seven, condemnation, or seven commendations. I know your works been watching you. I know what you've been doing for the gospel. I know your works, Jesus says. I know your toil. I know this work didn't come easy. I know how hard you're working. I know you had to struggle. I know it's been hard to try to raise Jesus up in a demonic, demonized city. I see that. I know how hard you've been striving. I know your patience endurance, he says. I know there have been times when you wanted to quit. When it seemed too hard, when you wanted to give up, yet you waited, you kept striving, and you have endured. I know how you cannot tolerate those who are evil. You have a very clear sense of what's right and wrong. You have a very strong moral code, and you follow it. You hold strong to your ethics, and you won't put up with people who don't strive to meet those standards. I know that you've tested those who call themselves apostles but are not, and you found them to be false. Do you remember what Paul told the church? Remember about the, the elders? After my departure, they're going to come in and they're going to try to destroy the flock. Jesus says, I know that you're enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my sake. You're facing hardships and trials and tough times. I want you to know that I see these things. I know how hard it's been for you. Some, some people in this room and listening just need to hear that. Whatever you're going through right now, I don't know what it is, but whatever you're going through right now, he knows. He knows. It didn't catch him by surprise. He knows. And he knows how hard it's been for you. He knows. I think we could get through almost anything as long as we truly knew 
that Jesus knows. And just like he's got the spirits in his hand, he's got you in his hand. And he knows. I know that you've not grown weary, he says. It would have been easy to give up or wear down over time, but you haven't done that. You've not grown weary. No matter how hard things have become for you, you're still doing your best and you're standing strong. No matter what, you would not quit. I love that about you, Jesus says. Seven commendations. John's got to be excited. I can't wait to go back to my church and tell them what Jesus just said about them because that's what I see. They're incredible. Yeah, right, Jesus? Aren't they great? Not so fast. But I have this against you, he says. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Boom. Jesus uses a sobering word, nevertheless, despite all that I just said, despite everything I just said was great, despite all that, despite all the good in the Ephesian church, I have something against you. You've abandoned or left the love that you had at first. Now many have misquoted this verse over the years. You've lost your first love. They hadn't lost it. They know where it is. They walked away from it. Much worse. It's not like they're going, oh, I got to get back. I got to find him. I don't know where he went. They're like, oh, I know where he is. I'm just not going there. I'm abandoning my first love. The distinction between leaving and losing is important. Something can be lost by accident, but leaving is a deliberate act. May not happen suddenly, but it's a deliberate choice. When we lose something, we don't know where to find it. When we leave something, we know where to find it. We're just choosing not to look for it. Though they had left their first love, notice that everything looked great on the outside. If you walked into that church, you'd be going, man, this church is booming. Look at how they are lifting up the gospel. Look at all that they're doing. If you'd attended a church service in Ephesus, you might have thought, this is a happening church. They're doing so much, they really guard the truth. And at the same time, you might have had a vague, uneasy feeling that you probably couldn't really pin down. Something's wrong. Jesus had no trouble finding the problem. Even though everything looked wonderful on the outside, what love did they leave? Well, as Christians, we're told to love God and to love one another. Did they leave for love for their love for God? Did they leave their love for one another? Probably both are in mind because they go together. You can't say you love God and not love your church family. You can't really love his family without loving him first. The Ephesian church, don't miss this because we're a lot like this. The Ephesian church was a doctrinally pure church. They taught only the truth and nothing else. Sometimes a focus on doctrinal purity will make a congregation cold, suspicious, judgmental, and intolerant. And you have to guard against that. Remember, by the time John is writing, he's almost 90. He's been in ministry for 60 years. Can you imagine the pain of hearing this? He referred himself as the one Jesus loved. He was known as the loving disciple. If you read his words when he writes, they're so full of love. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Nothing was made through him. That he, John just writes about this love he has for Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, I never stop loving you, but guess what? You've abandoned your first love. He had such a unique relationship with Jesus. It was funny sometimes. He asked his mother to approach Jesus for him and ask what his role would be. And Jesus responds in a funny manner. He calls James and John sons of thunder. They were nothing like sons of thunder. 
John was more the thinking, introspective poet of the group. Peter might have been a son of thunder. He had something kicking. Jesus is calling him back to those moments. Do do you remember about me when we first started? Remember how you're on fire with love for me? John described those feelings in the letters of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest in us. Look at how carefully John places these words, which we have heard. John traveled with Jesus for three years. He's still hearing him in his head. He heard every sermon, every discussion, everything Jesus had to say. He heard him in those late night discussions. He heard him and saw him love those who seemed unlovable. He heard him rebuke those who seemed to have power. He knew the sound, the inflection, the subtleties of Jesus' voice. He says, that which we've heard, which we've seen with our own eyes. John knew what Jesus looked like. He knew what his eyes were like. He knew his body habitus. He knew how Jesus walked. He knew Jesus' expression when he laughed. He knew the hand gestures Jesus used. He'd seen it all. That which we have seen. That which we have looked upon. The original word is better. It's gazed. John didn't just see Jesus. He gazed upon him with wonder. In those moments when he wondered what kind of man could this be, He gazed upon him. He gazed upon Christ with wonder. Then he says, that which we've touched with our hands. He was human. He was here. How many times do you think Jesus touched John? Put his arm around him. Slapped him on the back. Prayed over him by laying on his hands. Gave him a hand to help him up, climb, or just a gentle touch of reassurance. John likewise at times likely reached out to touch Jesus in the same manner. The one we've touched with our own hands hands. John says, I know him. The one we proclaim who is the word of life. John had an intimate relationship with Jesus. And now in Revelation, Jesus is saying, you have abandoned your first love. Boom. How does the last remaining apostle the leader of the church at Ephesus, the writer of five different books of the Bible, lead a church that's lost its first love. How does that happen? How could it possibly have? This is John, the apostle. I get it. I totally get it. John has been in ministry for 60 years. I've known and shared experience with a lot of pastors over the last 20 years that I've been leading churches. We all started out in our early days responding to God's call for one simple reason. We fell in love with Christ and we wanted to serve Him and give our life to Him. He's our first love. Same way you fall in love with anyone. Early on, everything's exciting and new. Driven by the incredible love you feel. Every thought in your life, it revolves around that person. But after some years of ministry, things change. You're now the pastor of a church. You have a staff. You have a budget. You have a building to maintain. Expectations to meet. A board of elders to respond to. An offering to maintain. Attendance to try to keep up. Start running a business. You have sermons to write. Programs to launch. People to counsel. Weddings to officiate. Funerals to walk through. You're almost always on call and everybody seems to be unhappy about something. Yet it's the greatest honor and job in the entire world. You get to serve Jesus and you lead others to do the same. You get to teach the Word of God and you get to see people's lives change. You get invited into the most intimate moments of people's lives. You get enormous support from those in the church. But sometimes in the quietness of your soul, when you're all alone, you ask yourself, How did I get here? You see, because it's so easy in ministry to get so involved with the church that you set Jesus aside. 
It happens to so many pastors. And pastors are leaving the ministry in droves. They're unable to reconnect to their first love because the ministry they developed actually prevents it. It's not just true of ministry. It can happen to any of us. We can over time abandon or leave our first love. We haven't lost it. We just ignored it. We stopped watering it. Stopped tending to it. Stopped fertilizing it. And it didn't grow. It can happen in any loving relationship. Great marriages learn how to reconnect with their first love. There's a definite sure difference in their relationship with Jesus. Things aren't like they used to be. It isn't that we expect to have the same excitement we had when everything was brand new in our Christian walk, when you couldn't wait for the doors to open, you couldn't wait to be around the people of the church. But newness should transition into a depth that makes your first love even stronger. It's a good analogy because the church is the bride of Christ. Our relationship with Jesus is like a marriage. The walk of a Christian marriage and a Christian and marriage are like any love relationship. There's mountaintop moments that take your breath away. There's valleys that seem so dark in between that a lot of flat land that just seems to go on forever. In every relationship that lasts, you learn how to reconnect with your first love. And you realize that your love for that person is now deeper, much more solid and built now on a lifetime of memories and experiences. Your spiritual journey with Jesus is the same. You can't be on a spiritual mountaintop all the time. There are dark times. There are flat times. There are times in between when you're just not sure you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Look at King David's life. He had mountaintops. He had valleys. Had some really dark moments where he pours out his emotions during those times in Psalms. He complains to God. He cries out to God. He praises God. And sometimes he just seems flat. That's how it is in the church. Most of us, if we were really honest, realize that this condemnation is not just for the church at Ephesus. But for all of us, all the churches of all times. And each of us in our personal relationship with Christ. We're going to see that in every letter. Every letter reveals ourselves. So he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember where you used to be. Repent. Turn around. Go back to the place where you left your love of Christ. And do the works you did at first. The first step in restoration for the Ephesian church is for them to remember. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like. Remember where you used to be in your love for the Lord and your love for each other. Remember that. Repent. This is not a command to feel something. To feel sorry or to feel sad. It means turn around. Repent. It's not a feeling. It's a physical action. Turn yourself around and go back to where you know you're supposed to go. It is an urgent appeal for an instant change of attitude and conduct before it's too late. Repent means you're going that way. God is that way. You need to turn your, around and get back towards God. And you need to do it right now. Not something you think about while you keep walking. Not something you think about while you try to figure out a way to get to do both. You turn yourself around and you go back to where you know you need to be. That's repent. Do the first works. Go back to the basics. Go back to the things you did when you first fell in love with Jesus. These are things we never grow beyond. The Lord Jesus is saying to John and the church at Ephesus and to all of us, I want you to get back there. I want you to come back to your first love. That's where I want to be with you. Remember, therefore, from which you've fallen. And then he warns them. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not... In other words, if you keep going that way, I'm going to come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
He's not saying, I'm going to take away your salvation. What he's saying is, I'm going to no longer use you to share the light of Christ with the world. Because you're walking to a place that doesn't work. You're going to a place where you can't represent me. You're shining your own light, and that's not where we're going. The only light you're to shine is mine, and it's over there. So what happened? If they don't repent, Jesus will remove the church. He'll take it away, he says. You see, now the church in general, Jesus says the gates of hell won't prevail against it. It will always be here. But a specific church who stops shining the light of Jesus will cease to be. When Paul left the church at Ephesus 40 years before John in this letter, he said that every person in Asia Minor had heard the gospel. In the early church, Asia Minor was the engine that drove the evangelistic efforts of the entire movement. Everything went through Ephesus. Now, 40 years later, John, or Jesus is warning John, if you don't repent and get back to your first love, I'll remove your lampstand. So how did that work out, you think? If you go to Turkey today, it's 98% Muslim. Only three churches today in Istanbul, and they're very hard to find. Our church has learned about Turkey. We have people there. Those churches that do exist are barely attended by anybody who calls Turkey home. They're usually visited by visitors. Did Jesus remove the lampstand? I showed you the pictures. You didn't see First Baptist Ephesus on the corner. There's no church in Ephesus anymore. If you'd gone back to the first century and you asked them, is there always going to be, a, of course there's going to be a church. Are you kidding me? Do you not see how big it is? Do you not see how effective it is? Do you not see? It's not there. Imagine how crushed John is at this moment. He knows it's true. And he knows that Jesus knows that it's true. Jesus has just done a study on the heart of his church, and they failed. The person John loved more than anyone on the planet has chastised him for his church not losing, but rather abandoning their love for him. I love, though, that Jesus doesn't leave John in a total disillusioned mess. Yet this you have. You hate the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whew, something good we're doing. Okay, good. The Nicolaitans were people who took the approach that the church should accommodate itself to the culture. Ephesus was a very enlightened city considered to have incredible culture, incredible awareness. Their theater sat 50,000 people. It was the home of the Temple Diana, seven wonders of the world, three great libraries of the time were kept there. It was a very sophisticated city, and the church was right in the middle of all that. Irenaeus, a late second century church author, pastor, knew of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans are followers of that Nicholas, who's one of the seven first ordained to the deaconate by the apostles. They lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. The character of these men is plainly pointed out in the Apocalypse of John, basically what we're reading, as teaching that it is a matter of indifference to practice adultery and to eat things sacrificed to idols. The Nicolaitans, like all deceivers that come from the body of Christ, not only claim not that they were destroying Christianity, but they were representing a new and improved and modernized version of the church. So there were people who said, you know what, the church should really accommodate the wishes and desires of the people who attend. The church needs to compromise and get along, be more relational. Bring in what's good for society and enhance the church with it. There are plenty of Nicolaitans in our society today and in Sarasota every weekend. They tell you, you need to connect with people. You see, the reason your church has empty seats, the reason it's not growing, is you're not connecting with people. You're not entertaining them. People need to be entertained before they can hear the message of Christ. 
If they always feel good, they'll keep coming back. The problem is, is that the church was never developed to connect people to the church. We were instructed to connect people to Jesus and let the church grow out of his truth, not our fallacies of what we think a church should look like. But let me just say this as clearly as I can. We get the word church from the word ecclesia in Greek. It literally means those who are called out. What's a church? People who are called out. People who are set apart. People who are called out. What are they called out of? The world and its culture. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The one thing the church should be clear is we are not the culture and the culture is not us. So how are we supposed to look at the world? I'll make it real easy for you. The world is the Titanic. It's crashed, it's destined for doom, and our job is not to get on the boat and be like them. Our job is not to dance with the dance band on the Titanic. Our job is not to take lessons on how to guide your life from people on the Titanic, but to get as many people as we can into the lifeboats. That's our job. We don't stand on the ship and go, whoa, don't we look good with everybody in the dining room? No, we have to tell them the truth. We have to tell them where they're headed, what's going to happen. We've got to get there in the lifeboats. That's our job. The church is never meant to blend or accommodate into the culture around it. The church is revolutionary. It's confrontational to the culture in which God has placed it. It happened every church ever planted. It's confrontational to the culture. I don't know how to say that in any more ways. The Nicolaitans were saying, look, let's just all get along. The church should make compromises so they can reach people and make them feel good when they come. Picture the firing, penetrating, piercing look of judgment in Jesus' eyes when he says, I hate that. That's what he says. I hate hate it. He doesn't say, oh, I wish they wouldn't do that. It really offends me. No, I hate it. You can find very few places in the Bible where Jesus himself says, I hate that. But you start bringing the world into his church. You start conforming your church to what they're doing out there where you can't tell the difference between people who are set apart and those that aren't, he's going to look at you with those eyes and he's going to go, Frank, I hate that. Don't let your church get there. And he looks at you and me and everybody and says, look, you're to stand out. You're to be different. When people look at you, they should see Jesus, not the culture. Now these are powerful words and they're even more powerful because they came from our Savior who is rich in love. We just sang how great is love. If we could only fathom your love, well his hate is just as bad. Whoever the Nicolaitans were and whoever and whatever they did and taught, we know about Jesus' opinion of them. We also learn that the God of love loves them but hated their sin. And he wants his people to do the same. Love them, but hate the sin. Then Jesus closes with a call to action. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Apparently, early on, the Ephesians heeded this warning. The Ephesian church did very well. In fact, Ignatius, who we talked about before in the 4th century, said, you who are the most holy church of the Ephesians, which is so famous and celebrated throughout the world, you being full of the Holy Spirit, do nothing according to the flesh, but all things according to your spirit. You are complete in Christ Jesus. By the 4th century, this church is rocking. It seems like they returned to their first love. 
without compromising their doctrinal purity. It's not always an easy balance to keep, but it looks like they kept it for a little while. The promise is that these overcomers, those who sustain themselves, can return to eternal life and eat from the tree of life. Let him who hears what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice it says to the churches, not to the church. Each of these letters is for all seven churches and for us. Remember last couple weeks when we looked at the first chapter? Jesus said, I'm going to reveal what was and what is and what is to come. And these seven church letters reveal what is. It reveals also what is for us right now. This letter is a warning to us. You see, it's so easy to abandon your first love and think everything's okay. You're going about doing what good Christians do. You're attending church, maybe volunteering in ministry. Maybe you never miss small group. Maybe you talk about Jesus at work. Maybe you try to live a moral and God-honoring life. Maybe on the outside, everyone would look in and think, oh, everything's okay. But think about John. Think about this incredible church at Ephesus. Founded by Paul, led by John. They did incredible things and looked incredible on the outside. And yet Jesus told them they'd abandon their first love. Not you're at risk of abandoning it. Not you might abandon it. It's past tense. You've abandoned it. So how do you know if Jesus is front and center in your life today? How do you know if you're just going through the motions? How do you know if you've abandoned your first love? I think there are four parameters I have in mind when I think about myself. Because serving at church and attending doesn't cut it. I have to attend. It's one of those things. Look at these areas of your life. First, your personal time alone with God in the Word. Your personal time alone with God in the world. I always say it. No one can sit with God for you. Are you in the Word every day? Are you prioritizing time in the Word? Can you imagine being married to somebody that you say you love and not spending any time with them and prioritizing something else in front of them? Second, your personal time of prayer with God. Imagine being married and never talking to your spouse. If you love Jesus, you love God, you love the Holy Spirit, you're going to be talking sharing your life. Third, commitment to the tithe. Fourth, how often you have to surrender to what he wants. You see, when you're in love with someone, you spend time learning everything you can about them. For Jesus, that means spending time in his word. You also love talking to them, so you spend time in prayer with God. And Jesus said, where your heart is, your treasure follows. You want to know where your heart is? Look at where you're spending your resources, your time, your talent, your treasures. If you're in love with Jesus, you want to give gifts and support the things that are important to him. And the frequency of your surrender to him. You see, if you're in the word and never changing, you're not in the word. The word is a mirror. It shows you who you really are. It shows you who God says you are. And it requires a heart of surrender to say, yes, Lord. Yes, that's true. Can you help me change? We're called to surrender to his truth and not to embrace our own truth. Those who are in love with Jesus have a desire to surrender easily to his truth. That's what love does. We have selfless devotion to him. We have to remember Jesus' command. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and turn back. Do things you did at first. Do you remember how you used to spend time in the word? Remember how you used to pray? Remember the joy of getting together with other believers? You couldn't wait for the doors to open. 
Remember how excited you were telling people about what Jesus has done in your life? Only you can consider the question of where you stand with your first love. But once again, it's not your opinion that matters. People who are loved know their love. If Jesus looked at your life, and he does, what does he say, hey Frank, hey Ed, Natalie, Tammy, you, Remnant, all of you, you've walked away from me. You, you, you didn't lose me, you've just chosen not to love me. Is that what he's saying? Or worse, perhaps you've allowed the ways of the world to impact your relationship with Christ. You see, it's easy to see the Nicolaitans in church. It's hard to see them in your own life. Where have you compromised with the ways of the world that has kept you from doing the things you're supposed to be doing for Jesus? What have you adopted as though that's just the way the world is? When Jesus called you to stand out and be different, to not surrender to money, to not surrender to the ways of the world, to transform your mind. Pleasures of the world, the ways of the world can be very present in your own relationship with Christ and you have basically excused them away. Jesus says to them and to us, I hate that. Communion is a time when we examine ourselves. Actually, we allow the Holy Spirit to examine us and we agree. We surrender to Jesus' view of what's true in our life. We take off our rose-colored glasses, we refuse to candy-coat our situation, we get rid of all the excuses we made, and we crawl naked and exposed on the altar of God as a living sacrifice. Jesus, tell me what you see in me. If there's anything in me that displeases you, get it out now. Jesus, how is my lampstand? If I was the last light for you on earth, how am I burning? The night before Jesus was crucified, he established the Lord's Supper. A new covenant, he said, in his blood. He took with bread, said it's his body. He took the wine, said his blood shed for us. God taught us through Paul to make sure that when we take communion, we examine ourselves. Communion is a time where we surrender to God and agree with Him about our condition. Saved, sealed, delivered by the Holy Spirit, but still wrestling with flesh. Still potentially allowing things of the world to penetrate our relationship. Choosing to take communion is essentially your way of signing the consent form. It tells Jesus you can do whatever you want. Anything, anywhere, anytime, Jesus, I surrender. You have my permission to change whatever you need to change. That's what communion's about. It's what self-examination's about. In a moment, we're going to take communion. He's going to examine us. We just surrender. Let's pray. God, the church at Ephesus is much like us. I pray, God, that as we learn, as we study these letters, we're going to see ourselves we take communion, I hope we see ourselves. God, would you speak to every person in this church? Many of us need to go back to our first love. Many of us just need to get on our knees and thank you for the love that we feel. But God, please, whatever you do in the next few moments, do not leave us where we are. Do whatever you have to do in our hearts to get us to repent, to turn, to change, and to pursue you with everything we have. Protect us from the ways of the world, from Satan's schemes to distract us from the mission. The last thing we want, God, is for you to look at anything in our lives and say, I hate that. So God, we surrender. Do what you must do in this room for your purposes and your kingdom. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name.